Jonathan Swift, the renowned author who penned Gulliver's Travels, once said, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. It's really interesting that sometimes religion is seen as a sort of hate instead of an opportunity to love. Yet at the very heart of the Christian faith is the love of God who compels us to love other people. These are times when our society is incredibly fragmented. People have polar opposing views on many issues. And this is a time when the church hasn't had an opportunity to gather together as a people physically. And it's probably a time when all sorts of divisions, all sorts of different opinions and differences in viewpoints can make us either drift apart in the best case or very often even fall out with one another. And this is why it's so important as we explore what it means to live as a family in our culture at CFM, to realize how important the love is as a factor of unity and encouragement and actually of advertising what a Christian faith is all about. So the backdrop of our story, we are in 1 Corinthians 13, and it's a passage you would have heard read at weddings very often because it's very poetic, it's beautiful, and it expresses what true love should look like. But actually, it's a very essential part in the theology of the church and in ecclesiology, in the way we view how a church should run and what the relationships in the church should be like. So it's not really meant for weddings in particular, it's more suitable in the context of church. And the backdrop of 1 Corinthians 13 is this letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, a church that was problematic with a lot of issues. Therefore, a normal church, probably just like ours and just like any other church on the face of the earth across centuries through which the Christian faith has existed. It's a challenge. It's a normal church. And there are a lot of challenges in the church. There are divisions through fan clubs. There are different people who show their allegiance and they are like to certain leaders in the church and they kind of compare notes and my leader is better than your leader. There's a sense of disorder in worship. There's immorality in the church. There are even lawsuits between believers. So a lot of conflict. And that's why the Apostle Paul is writing about the importance of love. And this particular chapter that we read, chapter 13 from 1 Corinthians, is actually sandwiched in between the Apostle Paul talking about the church being a body who is made up of different people who have different gifts, all given by the same God. And then further on in chapter 14, again, he talks about how those gifts should be used. But right in the middle, sandwiched, but actually, I would suggest almost like a backbone of what worship and ministry in the church should look like is actually the concept of love, which is so important. In many ways, somebody once said, and I totally agree, that actually the love is almost like the circulatory system in the body of Christ. Love makes everything glued together and makes everything function well together. 
And this is why it's so important. And actually, probably just in the same way you took a theory test before you started driving, before you actually took the practical test, it's almost like the Apostle Paul is saying, look, as you exercise the gifts in the church, as you figure out what it means to be a body with different members and figure out how that works, don't forget, right at the very heart of it is a theology, and a theology is one of love, which is so important. The Greeks, you would have heard this, had three different words for love. Eros, which talks about the sort of physical, erotic love. Filio, which means that sense of camaraderie and friendship and kinship, being able to work things together and support one another. And then the last one, which is the love that we're going to talk about in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the agape love, which is a love that is totally selfless and actually is best reflected in the love that God has for us. So right at the very beginning as a foundation, I want us to understand that the love that God wants to see in the body of Christ, in the church, is of the same value and of the same nature as the love that he has shown to us, to every single one of us who have become followers of Jesus through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. That's the kind of love that God wants to see amongst us. There are some wonderful ways in which the New Testament talks about this. And the Father has taught us to love by sending his Son, 1 John 4, 19. And the Son taught us to love by giving his life and by commanding us to live to love one another, John 13, 34 and 35. The Holy Spirit, see the whole Trinity is involved in this. The Holy Spirit teaches us to love one another by pouring out God's love into our hearts, Romans 5, 5. But the most foundational verse in terms of understanding what God's love is like and how it influences us to love other people is right here in 1 John 4, 19. We love because God first loved us. So the love that God wants to see in our lives is the love that he showed to us and he expects to overflow out of our lives because of the work of Jesus on the cross. So the Apostle Paul is talking about this love and he is encouraging us to discover what it means. Let's read together 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. What's the motivation for love? That's the big question that we want to ask. What's the motivation for love? And the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the Corinthians, would say, love is better than gifting. And he uses three different things that he, he wants to actually, four probably, but three different supernatural things that are very popular that would make us stand back and go, wow, if we saw somebody operate in any of those ministry gifts. 
The first one is tongues. It's a spiritual language to which we speak to God in worship and we edify ourselves. And it's spectacular. It's what happened on, uh, on, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And Paul, as he writes to the Corinthians, is saying, even though I speak in the tongues of men and angels. And then he adds prophecies into it, which again would have been the gift that Paul stresses, as you read in 1 Corinthians 14 in the next chapter, that he'd rather prefer prophecies to tongues to be exercised in a public service. So it would have been something that edifies the whole church, all the people that are gathered. They are words from God that speak into the situations that people find themselves in to reveal the heart of God, the word of God to them, through which people say our hearts are touched by this. God is speaking to us. And Paul is saying, even though I have prophecies, if I don't have love, I have nothing. Even though I have faith, Paul is saying, to move the mountains. I mean, this is next level, top level kind of faith. I mean, obviously, he's speaking metaphorically. He's using a hyperbole that Jesus himself used. But actually saying, even though you may pray and see incredible responses to your prayer because of your faith. If you don't have love, you have nothing. And then he throws in knowledge as well. Even if you had a knowledge of all the mysteries, but you have no love. Even though you have the Bible teaching, the insights, maybe you're an incredible expositionary preacher, teacher, but you have love missing. You have nothing. So what Paul is trying to say is that love is better than gifting. And he uses the, the imagery of the gongs and the clanging cymbals, which would have been familiar to the Corinthians because very often outside of the temples, there would have been clanging cymbals and people, as they would go to, to, to worship, they would, as it were, almost ring the bell to awaken the gods. So that would have been a reminder to them that actually, if you have no love, all that you're doing, it looks like just a pagan rite. Or another imagery is the fact that very often, if somebody was just speaking very loudly and very longly, but saying nothing in local oratory, they would have been referred to as a gong. So it would have been a derogatory term to somebody who was just full of hot air, but saying nothing profound. And again, he's probably saying, the Apostle Paul is saying to the Corinthians, he would have been familiar with that kind of language. Look, if, you, if you're exercising all these different gifts, you're just empty and full of hot air, loud speeches that say nothing. So without love, all the gifting that you might have, whether it's tongues, whether it's prophecies, whether it's faith, whether it's knowledge, and that kind of covers almost everything. He's saying they amount to nothing without love. They're exposed as being useless. And then she shifts to another thing. Love is not just better than gifting, but it's also better than sacrifices. He says, even if you give everything that you have to the poor, even if you are the most generous person that's ever been, even though you might be able to part with your possessions and be willing to give them to people that you don't know, 
They are not your family. They're not the people that you feel inclined to. They're just the poor. Even if you're the most socially radical, generous person, but you have no love, it amounts to nothing. Arms giving would have been very important to those who are listening. In any culture, a Jewish person, arms giving would have been very important and it would have been part of the background of the Old Testament teaching. But also for the Greeks, for sure that would have had an impact. Almost any religion that you can think of would have financial generosity towards the poor as a very important feature to it. And again, Paul is saying all that without love is nothing. And then he's almost talking about even if you're willing to have your body being burned, which we don't really know what it means. It could have been something to do with being branded as a slave. Or even metaphorically being willing to give up your life, to sacrifice your life for someone. But he says if you don't have love, no matter how sacrificial you are, no matter how radical you are in your willingness to show that sacrifice for others, without love, it's worth nothing. So he's bringing through those two categories, the gifting and the sacrifices, probably those kind of people that we could be tempted to say, we're very impressed with them. They are people who are gifted. They are people who speak in tongues. They are people who prophesy. They are people who have faith. They are people who have knowledge. They are people who are generous. There are people who are sacrificial. What a person you could describe. And yet to all of those, whether it's gifting or sacrifice and service, Paul is saying, if there's one ingredient missing, love, it amounts to nothing. Zero. No value whatsoever. And you see, I think Paul is tapping into something very often. We can be full of excuses and we can be devoid of love and hide behind a, oh, but I serve, I sing, I preach, I go out to help, I go to get involved in that work, I go to support that group, I, behind the scenes, I set up this and I do that. And every single time we're challenged with the question of love, we can pull out that card through which we say, oh, but I'm involved and I'm committed and I'm doing stuff for God and for people. I serve, I give. But the question is, how and why? And the foundational question is this, why do I do what I do? The motivation is so important. And here is where the love comes into it. So what's my motivation? Why, why, why do I do? Why do I exercise those gifts? Why am I so gifted? And, and why am I ready to serve other people? Why? And very often it's because of me. Because through doing that, I get a sense of self-satisfaction. It's all about me. It makes me feel better. I feel like I'm doing something. And then also there are other people around me who look up at me. And of course, you and I know that feels good. That strokes our ego and our ego likes to be stroked and likes to receive the adulation of people. Why do we do it? Do we do it to make ourselves feel better? 
Is it me-centered? Is it other-centered? Do you do it because it's it's kind of condescending and it makes us feel good to help other people and to feel superior somewhere above that we can lean down and sort of extend a hand? Why do we do what we do? What's our attitude when we serve and when we are ready to sacrifice something? Is it a project in which we're driven by our own intention? Is it a chore that we do reluctantly because it's the right thing to do? Or is it an act of worship? Because that's where the love comes into. See, there's a test that we can do with all this serving and all these sacrifices. There's a test we can do. And the test is this that we can always apply. Do I need a platform to be seen and heard? Am I the kind of person that can't just be? I have to do? You know, you, can't, you just can't be. Just be. You have to do something. What happens when what I do isn't noticed? Or even worse, what happens when what others do is noticed and what I do isn't noticed? What happens when I do something for someone and they don't do it back for me? See, the answers to all of those questions will pull us back and will expose whether what we do is out of love or out of self-interest or a desire to impress people or even sometimes out of a sense of guilt. So our calling is to do whatever we do for one reason only, love. A love for God that actually ends up being a love for other people. I learned this from Jesus himself. Everything that Jesus did, and this is quite radical maybe for some of you, everything that Jesus did, he did first and foremost because he loved the Father. People often say, oh, everything that Jesus did is because he loved people. Yeah, but that's secondary. His primary reason, he loved the Father. And he loved the Father's heart who desire to find somebody who will go and pay the price in order to reconcile the world to himself. So Jesus does this because he loves the Father. And because he loves the Father, he loves the people. And that should be the example. That should be the lesson we need to take heart of. Everything that we do should be an act of worship and done with love. Love for the Father and then subsequently a love for the people. And therefore, every ministry, everything that I do, everything that God has gifted me with, every sacrifice that I make, it's not for me. It's not for me. It's not about me. And you see, the how we serve is just as important as what we do. And this is applicable to all those who are involved in any sort of way of serving in the church. Obviously, if you're on a stage, if you're a preacher, teacher, worship leader, musician, if you're a connect group leader, if you're somebody who leads the children or the youth ministry, if you're somebody who leads a ministry in the community, 
This applies to all of us. How we do things is just as important as what we do. Let me express how this look like, looks like. First of all, when we prep something, if we truly serve other people in love, our first question is not, what do I like? So when I sit and bring God's word to, to us, I don't primarily sit and think, hey, Christy, what would you love to preach on? What would be the best thing to showcase your skills? When anybody who's leading worship is leading worship, they don't just sit down and think, oh, what's my favorite song? Or what's the song that's going to show off how brilliant a musician or a singer I am? No, we ask the question, what do people most need? We put the people first because we love and we serve in love. We don't put ourselves first. We put the people first. When it comes to the delivery, you know, I remember a, a very well-known Christian speaker saying that very often he was at a large conferences and quite intimidated about going up on stage and, and, and speaking. And very often he would peer from behind the curtain. And as he looked at the audience, he realized that all those were his brothers and sisters. Broken and mended and mending, just like him. But they were people for whom Jesus died. For whom Jesus suffered and for whom Jesus paid a price. And that made all the difference in the way he preached, in the way he shared God's word to them. With love. They're not people to be preached at. They're not people to be impressed. They are blood-bought brothers and sisters to whom you serve with love, not with anger, not with arrogance, not with insecurity, not with a desire to impress and get clapped, but people that you want to see blessed by God as you serve them in love. And then if we truly are those who serve in love, those who sacrifice in love, we are ready to not receive any thanks because we do it as an act of worship towards God. And when we receive constructive criticism, we receive it with humility. That doesn't mean that we don't want to be an encouraging community, but that means that we don't expect it. We are not entitled because ultimately what we're longing for if we serve in love is that well done, good and faithful servant that will come from Jesus himself. Love needs to be at the very heart of what church is about, what relationships are about, what serving and connecting and doing things together is all about. I love the way Jonathan Lehman writes about the importance of love in the church. And this is what he says. And I'm going to close with his words. Once you choose Christ, you must choose his people too. 
It's a package deal. Choose the father and the son and you have to choose the whole family, which you do through your local church. We are strangers and aliens here on earth. Christians must look forward to their homeland, but hold on. There is a place on earth where citizens of heaven can, at this moment, find official recognition and asylum, and it's in the local church. Churches represent Christ's rule now. They affirm and protect their citizens now. They proclaim Jesus' laws over them now. They bow before him as king now and call the other peoples to do the same. The local church enables the world to look upon the canvas of God's people and see an authentic painting of Christ's love and holiness, not a forgery. May the Spirit of God keep on working in our hearts to make us just that as a church, a church built on a foundation of love, the love of Christ, and a church that functions and thrives through relationships of godly, sacrificial, agape love, through which God is painting a canvas of love of holiness, not a forgery. Amen.